President Bush has designated this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, as a proclamation of thanksgiving for the successful events in the Persian Gulf. And we join in thanks to God for that successful conclusion, and we pray that the peace that we now know in terms of the cessation of activity, warfare, will seep down to the level of personal peace, and we can know a greater degree of peace in the world. We pray for those troops still there and for a safe return to their families here. We thank God for this wonderful event and praise Him for it now in prayers. We bow our heads and close our eyes. And Father, we join together to thank You for leading in the counsels of men. We thank You for Your providential watch care over Your world. Dear God, we know there are many troubled spots as there are many troubled hearts. But we know that you personally are the solution to those troubles, that you are truly the peace that passes all understanding, both in human relations and international relations, personal relations, and in our own attitude toward ourselves. And so we pray that there will be a great wave of your peace, the peace of God, upon our hearts and lives today as we thank you for the successful conclusion to the war in the Persian Gulf, and we pray now for a genuine and lasting peace and a return of all of the troops there to their homes and to their place of service in this land. Bless this service with the presence of your peace in our hearts and lives, we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Now, we're all going to stand because Christy Plummer is going to come and going to lead us in the reading of the Word of God, and then after Christy has led us in prayer, in reading the scripture. David Perry is going to lead us in prayer. So Christy, you come. I want everybody now to stand for the reading of God's word. As Christy reads God's word and remains standing as David leads us in prayer. Um, this is from Romans 10, 9 through 11. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you with open hearts and open minds to worship your name. Thank you for fulfilling all our needs. When we have a problem, you are always there. When we are lonely or troubled, you comfort us. You have given us a place filled with love to worship you in your word. Help us to follow your teachings and live the life that you have chosen for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You remember reading Robert Louis Stevenson's strange story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll, beloved physician, respected, kind, considerate, devised a method whereby he became and could become a hideous personality, vicious and destructive, named Mr. Hyde. Initially, this is very important to remember, initially it was difficult for Dr. Jekyll, the good, beloved Dr. Jekyll, to become the hated and feared Mr. Hyde. 
it was difficult for him to make the transition to that hideous character. And in the beginning, it was relatively easy for Mr. Hyde to revert back to being Dr. Jekyll. That's very important to the picture because it's a true picture of life. Difficult at first to be hideous Mr. Hyde, easy to return to being Dr. Jekyll. But with the passing of time, it became increasingly easy for Dr. Jekyll to become Mr. Hyde and correspondingly difficult for him to return to being Dr. Jekyll. As Dr. Jekyll, he would care for the sick, the infirm, the hurting, little children and elderly people. As Mr. Hyde, he killed an elderly man and a little child. As Dr. Jekyll, he was revered and respected, venerable character. As Mr. Hyde, he would write blasphemous words upon the pages of the Bible. One day, Dr. Jekyll went into the park and was sitting on a park bench watching the children play in the park. And his arm was resting on the back of the bench. And suddenly, without any effort on his part, without any conscious intent on his part, he saw the healing hand of Dr. Jekyll begin to transform into the hideous hand of Mr. Hyde. He lost control. He rushed back to his office, the office of Dr. Jekyll, locked himself in his office, and tried to reverse the process. They beat on the door. They knocked on the door. They finally broke the door open. And they found Dr. Jekyll dead on the floor. A suicide? No. They found Mr. Hyde. Dead. Literature tells us that. Psychology tells us that. William James says the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. The chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. How could a good Dr. Jekyll become a horrible, detestable Mr. Hyde? How indeed? How could good, ethical, moral, religious leaders follow a process of thinking and behaving that could lead them to the place where they would murder, crucify, Kill the only perfect man who ever lived. And that's exactly what happened. 
12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew tells us about it. I need to tell you a word about the background of this passage of Scripture. I'm going to begin reading in the 22nd verse, but that's about halfway through the chapter. Now, the context, the setting, the events that lead up to these words that I'm going to read regarding the unpardonable sin have a, have a background that is essential if you and I understand the nature of what this is all about. For in the 12th chapter, what you have initially in the 12th chapter, Jesus and the disciples are walking through the cornfields on the Sabbath day. Now, the Sabbath was not Sunday, as we talked about last week and say often. The Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and concluded at sundown on Saturday. Saturday's the Sabbath. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Never has been. Never will be. It's the Lord's Day. It's Resurrection Day. It's the Son's, S-O-N-S, Day. So Jesus, but, but oh, listen, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were very serious about a person's behavior on the Sabbath day. In fact, they had 39 specific laws relating to it that had grown out of the one word to remember the Lord's day and to keep it holy. So they'd come along with an addition to the law, their interpretation of the law, that they said, the religious leaders of the day said, even took precedence over the original law. So here they had all these 39 things you were not to do. Well, they walked through the cornfields on the Sabbath, and it was perfectly right and normal for those disciples to start eating the corn that grew alongside the public thoroughfare. That was the law in the day. Anything that grew alongside a public thoroughfare was considered public property, like a fig tree or something, or the corn. You could take it. So they weren't stealing something. That was permissible. But they were doing it on the Sabbath, on Saturday. And that infuriated, that infuriated the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they accosted him about it. You read that in the first few verses of the 12th chapter. And he refuted them by referring them to the Old Testament events in David's life. He tried to reason with them. But it's difficult to reason with a closed-minded legalist. Then he gets on into the, into the synagogue at Capernaum on the Sabbath. And there is a man there with a withered hand. And they, questioning him, that is Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? in order that they might accuse him. They were trying to trick him into, into a bad situation. And he said to them, What man shall there be among you who shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? Come on, religious leaders, think. I mean, do you mean to tell me that a sheep is more important than this man with a withered hand, that he's got to wait till Monday or Sunday or Tuesday or some other day to be healed of this infirmity? What are you thinking of? And so Jesus just seemed to say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to show you. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand and it was restored to normal like the other. But I get this. Here's Dr. Jekyll at work, becoming something else. But the Pharisees, these official religious leaders, these people who crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, told everybody else what to do, even if they didn't do it. Here they are. Say, okay. Here the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him, Jesus, as to how they might destroy him. 
kill him. Because he healed a man on Saturday. I tell you what was withered in that room that day was not that man's hand as much as it was the hearts and the minds of those religious bigots. That's where there was no life, no vitality, no hand to help. Oh, my goodness. They had so many laws about what you could do on the Sabbath. It's just, and I'm not making these up, friends. I can tell you where to find them. These were the laws. Some of them, oh, you go on and on and on and on. For example, if your sandals had nails in them, you couldn't wear those sandals on the Sabbath because that constituted carrying a burden. That was work. If you happened to wear false teeth, and many people did in that day, if you happened to wear false teeth, you couldn't wear them on the Sabbath. That was carrying a burden. Uh, a woman could not look in the mirror on the Sabbath. The reasoning being that if she looked in the mirror on the Sabbath and saw a gray hair and pulled out that gray hair, that would be considered work. They didn't know about rinses and that sort of thing in those days, I guess, but so you couldn't even look in the mirror because you pull it. We say, oh, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that crazy? Well, that's what can happen. You see, if you get locked into this tight, swiveled world of religiosity and miss the truth that Jesus came to convey and communicate. It's supposed to be a true, a true story. I read it many years ago in the trials and trails of the Texas Rangers about a West Texas cowboy was converted. He'd never been to church, didn't know anything about it. He went, heard the word of the Lord, and became a Christian. And a uh, little West Texas town. And the next Saturday night, he went to a dance. And they called him before the church on Sunday morning. And they were going to withdraw fellowship from him. That's Baptist terminology for kick him out. That's a euphemism for boot him out of here. He was, uh, he was just chagrined and apologetic and crestfallen. He said, I didn't know. He said, my goodness, nobody's told me. He said, I'm so happy to know the Lord and be a Christian and go to church here. And I, I wouldn't embarrass anybody for anything in the world. In fact, he said, I, I don't even like to dance very much. In fact, he said, I wouldn't have been dancing in the first place if I hadn't been drunk. Well... Swallow a gnat and strain out a camel. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So now that's the background when these religious leaders, these legalists, try to trick Jesus. Now I'll begin reading, 22nd verse. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Huh. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man, referring to Jesus, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, they accused Jesus of being in league with Satan, of being one with Satan. And he, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, 
And any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. He tried to use logic to refute their erroneous accusations. They were close to that. He knew they would be, but he was still trying to talk sense into their closed minds. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? Doesn't it make sense? Trying to reason with them, appeal to logic, didn't work. Another argument, he said, And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For they were doing the same. Consequently, he said, They shall be your judges. Your sons shall be. Here it comes. This is the key verse. These next two of the three that we're going to read. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The kingdom of God has come to you. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He, here it is, verse 30, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, here comes this passage of Scripture about which so many questions are asked, and we hope with the help and leadership of God to maybe answer some. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. Let me say a word or two briefly about what the unpardonable sin is not, what it is not. It is not murder. It is not adultery. It is not suicide. It is not divorce. It is not any of those. Any or all of those are sins in the sense that they can have a disastrous effect upon our lives and often upon the lives of innocent people. They can create great havoc and hurt to us and to others. And for me to make this statement of qualification about the unpardonable sin is not to be misinterpreted as minimizing the seriousness of any sin. It is serious business for us and for those about us who are influenced by it. But those sins, as serious as they are, are not unpardonable or unforgivable. Never. 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 Sometimes we think certain sins of ours are unforgivable because they are unforgettable to us. They've had such an impact upon us. And certain events, either of our doing or the instigation of someone else with an adverse effect upon us have burned such a black brand upon our mind that we cannot imagine that it can be forgiven and forgotten because we cannot forget it. But God has promised 
to remember our sin against us no more and to forget all of our transgressions and to wipe them out and to make them clean and to separate us from them as far as the east is from the west. And the only reason that God allows us to remember is so that we will remember to thank Him for the complete forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ and with the aid of His Spirit turn those problems, however serious and heinous they might be, into teachers for tomorrow to help us live better, more moral Christian lives. So the fact that certain events in your life and mine may seem unforgettable doesn't mean they are unforgivable and thereby are the unpardonable sin. I've talked to people all, so often, in fact, it happened this past week, when a person said had some terrible things happen in, in their life, some things maybe that they felt responsible for and some things that had happened to them that they were not responsible for. But they had been catastrophic things in this individual's life. And they wondered, can this be forgiven? Can, can I join the church? Can, can I be in Sunday school? Can I sing in the choir? Can I be a deacon? Can I go into the ministry? So of course, all of our sins can be forgiven and are. And with the forgiveness of sin becomes not only the power of cleansing, but the power of transformed living. And the proof of our forgiveness is in the transformation of our lives subsequent to that and the teaching that grows out of that by the indwelling tutor of God, namely the Holy Spirit. Yes. And I said to this individual, what would you say to some friend of yours that came to you with the same problems you just presented to me? What would you say to them? I said, why don't you take the advice yourself that you give somebody else? You know, a lot of us are kinder and more considerate and thoughtful and helpful to other people than we are to ourselves. The Lord tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. A lot of us need to love ourselves as much as we love our neighbor. We need to turn that formula around and let it apply to my life and to yours. So the remembrance of a lot of things in your life and mine will always remain, but they will not remain as a pain. They will remain as a power transformed by the grace of God. There'll be wind beneath your wings. Ron sang about earlier. All right? What is the unpardonable sin? Here's the key. Jesus says, if what I do, I do by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. You and I are responsible to deal with the kingship of Jesus Christ over life. We're down to a decision-making time. And Jesus emphasizes that, reiterates that, underlines that in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who gathers not with me scatters. You and I are confronted with the living Christ. Now notice what he is saying here. We are confronted by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
a God who predicted and revealed and prophesied the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ coming in a body, saying, My works testify of Me. My works give evidence to the fact that I am one with the Father, that I am God's only begotten Son. But in addition to that, now comes that inner witness of the Holy Spirit that speaks to your heart and to your mind and takes the external evidence of the creative power of God and the incarnate power of God in Jesus Christ and it subjectifies that power and moves it into your heart and into your life and suddenly it's the triune witness of God to the triune nature of man. Equilateral triangle equaling and meeting equilateral bodies and minds and spirits. God speaks to my mind. Christ speaks to my body and my life. The Holy Spirit speaks to my spirit. And so that's why he said, you can say things about God. You can say things about the Son of God. But when you come to that inner witness, you're right down to the fourth quarter with about two seconds to play. And when God presents that inner witness of the Holy Spirit, then it's decision time. And it's that decision that makes a difference in eternity for men and women, as well as a, dis a decision that makes a difference in time, right here, right now. Now, there are two, two statements I want to make and, and uh, underline this. There is a law. There is a law in physical nature and a law in human nature. That if we do not use what we have, we lose it. Not because God comes along and takes it away, but because we ignore it. It happens in nature. The mole is not born blind. He becomes blind because he burrows himself in the dark. A monk took a vow not to speak for 50 years. After 50 years, tried to speak and couldn't. He'd lost the ability. If we do not use what we have, the, endow the endowments of God and the gifts of God and the capacities God has given us in creation, if we do not use those, we lose them. 1963, I had a serious automobile accident. A number of you in this room will remember that time, and you prayed for me, and I'm grateful for that. I was in serious condition for a long while. I had uh, a broken shoulder and a separated shoulder, but that was, that was minor compared to whatever else was wrong with me, which was serious. So they didn't even try to fix my shoulder then. They just taped it to my body here and left it there for eight weeks and took care of the other problems to save my life and to try to get me moving toward health. Well, now the broken part of the shoulder healed, but it's still separated. I still have a separated shoulder, which is probably the only reason I'm still not playing for the Dallas Cowboys. I have that separated <laughs> shoulder. Um, it badly affects my golf game. Golfers are the most inhumane individuals in the world. I'm out there suffering just to have the fellowship with these men. They won't give me any strokes or any consideration or anything. And I'm a wounded man. 
I've got 20% limitation in this arm. I can't even hold it up there. It's just hurting now to think about it. But you know what happened after they took that, all that bandage off after two months? I had an arm, but I couldn't use it. I had an arm, but I couldn't use it. I went through months of therapy to try to get the use of that arm back. Some of you have been through this sort of thing. We have to walk it up a wall, you know, that kind of deal. That hurts. I'd start doing this, you know, and doctor, nope, you've got to stand straight up. It hurts. Because I've not used it. Try it. I mean... If your soul is at stake, try it. Immobilize some part of your body and see if it doesn't atrophy. It does. And listen, God has put the muscle of faith in your heart as surely as he's put that muscle in my arm. And if I don't use that muscle of faith, it will atrophy. And when the time comes and I want to use it, it won't work. Not because God has judged it, but because I've not used it. Therefore, to persist, in a disposition that is contrary to the best interests of your soul is to commit spiritual suicide. I want to repeat that. To persist in an attitude, an action, a disposition that is contrary to your best interests spiritually, mentally, physically, eternally is to commit suicide. God doesn't do it to you. We do it to ourselves. That verse of Scripture that's sometimes troubling the individuals in the Old Testament when Moses was confronting Pharaoh and the King James translation says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart when he was confronted with the message of God to let God's people go. And he refused, he relented. And it says it's because God hardened Pharaoh's heart when you read that and study it and get some insight from Hebrew scholars, you come to see what it's saying is that God brought Pharaoh to a point of decision and it was Pharaoh's decision that was responsible for the hardening of his heart. God took the initial move and so in that sense he was a causative factor only to the degree that he brought Pharaoh to a place of decision and if Pharaoh had made the right decision, his life and history would have been different he made the wrong decision. He hardened his own heart. The same thing is true with each one of us. If someone walks up to the door of your home and knocks on the front door, you hear them knock? You say, well, I, I can't come to the door right now. I want to. I'm going to let you in someday, but not right now. And with that refusal, you insulate the inside of the door. You put some insulation up there. Well, the person comes back next day and knocks on the door. Say, oh, I'm still too busy. I've got to get the house cleaned up and other things I've got fixed. Uh, can't do it right now. You put some more insulation on the back side of that door. And each day with each knocking, a corresponding insulation. Sooner or later, as you insulate the inside of that door, that person can stand outside the door with a sledgehammer. And you will not hear it, not because the person is not knocking, but because you have hardened the inside of the door. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. If any man will hear my voice, not if any man can. It's a matter of will. You can, if you will, hear his voice 
and open the door, He will come in. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now the crucial point is this, and I'm through. There is a vast world, more than a vast world, a vast eternity of difference between a unpardonable sin and the unpardonable sin. A unpardonable sin is to reject Jesus Christ the first time you hear His message. That is a unpardonable sin. It's logical, it's simple. The only way you can be forgiven of the sin of rejecting Jesus is to reject, is to accept Him. The only way you and I can be forgiven of the sin of rejection of Jesus Christ is to let Him into our hearts and to accept Him. Therefore, to refuse to accept Him is to ask Him to stay out of our lives. That is unforgivable. For the basis of the forgiveness of that sin, like all other sins, is the acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, a unpardonable sin of rejecting Jesus Christ over a period of time will have a progressively detrimental effect upon your capacity to hear and the day may come when you will not be able to hear or even care. I want you to notice in the reading of this passage of Scripture this morning that Jesus was issuing a warning. He was not passing sentence on those men. He was only warning them of the impending doom that awaits anybody who so hardens their heart against the love of God that they lose the ability to even distinguish between the works of God and the works of Satan. To get to the place where you cannot even tell the difference between light and dark, between right and wrong. Therefore, if you are here this morning and you care about whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin, you've not. You have not. The very capacity to be concerned about that shows that there is the capacity still there for you to respond to what God would have you to do and be. But what I'm here to do this morning with, with God's help and God's guidance and God's leadership is to say a word that the Holy Spirit will take and use to convince you and then convict you and then convert you to the point you'll say, I will accept Him. I do trust Him. For the Bible nowhere, not on any page or in any sentence, tells us to trust the Lord tomorrow. Never. It's always now. If it's right to trust Christ, it's right to trust Him now. If it's a good thing to follow the Lord, it's a good thing to do it now. The Bible says today is the day, then it even gets more specific in that than that. Today is the day and now is the time. Right now. Therefore, if you have some impression inside of you this morning that you need to do something with your relationship to God, accept Christ, join His church, rededicate your life, change the direction of your Christian behavior. If you have some impression, that's not Buckner Fanning, that's not a sermon. We've not told any sentimental deathbed stories. There's been no playing with your emotions. It's been a rather harsh sermon in the sense that it's been A, B, C, D. This is it. 
Now something's happening down inside. That's the Holy Spirit doing exactly what Jesus said he would do in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. That's the Spirit of God witnessing to you. And I urge you, I plead with you. I do plead with you to do that which God would have you to do today, which is the day, and now, which is the time.